Well, I think we have a quorum. I think we can get started. Uh, good to see you all. This is our last lesson. You'll notice that the five lessons are on the top of the, the study guide there. Uh, God will have his way with the righteous was our first lesson. Number two, what looked looks like bondage to us may be proof of our freedom. Three, we learn from Job how to comfort those who suffer. And number four, true piety is honest and bold and is centered on God. Our fifth lesson for today is a deepening understanding of God and his ways is, is costly. I guess if you expect to grow up in Christ, uh, there's a price to be paid. Um, and the understanding of the temporariness of this side of eternity is to be understood. And that's what's gained in the light of the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, is something to be prized by us. The cost that's paid in taking up a cross and following Jesus is really well worth it. Forty-two chapters kind of defies the Western mentality, these 42 chapters. Three chapters, maybe. But for it to go on and on and on is kind of difficult for us to get our minds and hearts around. But this morning, in the few minutes that we have, we're going to try. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you for convening this time and ask that uh, our introduction to Job might be something that resonates with our souls, our spirits for, the for some time to come and motivate us to understand what you were doing in his life and what you're doing in our lives better. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Son, to the glory of the Father. Amen. We have listened uh, to Job now, with, uh, and we've, remember we, we said that as time has gone on, Job has become much more kind of uh, sane and rational. Uh, you would think it'd be the opposite, but as time has gone on, he becomes uh, stronger and more powerful. Um, do you remember the movie Castaway, starring Tom Hanks? And as time goes on, the uh, Tom descends into kind of a caveman almost status. He becomes less and less as he attempts to just survive. Well, in Job, we have found he's still on the ash heap. His body is still boiled. He is... Uh, a broken man, but in his spirit and his soul, he's becoming very strong. And he makes his case for his own righteousness, a righteousness that is by grace, a righteousness that is based on God's word to him, a righteousness that would be impossible, as he admits, without the power of God in his life. It's that righteousness he defends. Because that's all he has to hold on to is what God has given to him. Because everything else has been taken away. And in the midst of that God-givenness, he cries out to God. He wants to make his case to God. He doesn't put God on trial. He's on trial. He knows he's on trial. 
And we rem- you remember, we've said that right along, God just delights in Job. He's his man. Put into this cosmic battle with Satan. Defending what is right and good. Blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and God delights in Job. Now, Job doesn't know this. He doesn't know this um, drama that's going on behind the scenes or above the scene. And with that, he is displaying a certain kind of freedom. A freedom to trust God when he has no earthly, worldly reason to trust. Only God. Now, after Job has made his case and defined righteousness in such beautiful ways, what he would not do and what he did because of God, and that's how his dialogue ends, we come to chapter 32 in Job, and we find that there's been a, in addition to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, there's been a fourth person that's been waiting on the wings, waiting on the wings to speak, Elihu. And Elihu is upset that they have not been able to put Job down. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have not been able to make a case against Job. And Elihu's upset with that. And finally, he basically, you know, we so much want to hear from God at this point. We are so ready to hear from God. It's not only Job who's ready, but we've, we're ready to hear from God in this drama. And then Elihu speaks, and he will not shut up. He talks and talks and talks and talks. Uh, I teach pastoral theology at Beeson, and I keep looking for particular characters in Scripture kind of to base a particular important theme on. So for King Saul, I talk about the narcissistic pastor. Uh, For Elihu, I talk about burnout, the problem of burnout. And I guess in preparing uh, the last couple days on this, uh, Elihu strikes me as a, as a great example of a sophomoric, proud pastor. One who is really very immature but thinks he or she knows a lot. Chapter 32 begins this way, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, usually when you see that expression, righteous in his own eyes, that's, that's a red flag. But I would suggest to you it's not here. This is how Job's supposed to feel from God's standpoint. He's clinging to his understanding of what it is to be right before God, and that's a grace-based right before God. Then Elihu, the son, we've got a couple of seats here and a couple of study guys. Oh, okay. Um, well, at least pass the study guide back to him. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Elihu, you get a feel for his kind of psychology in, in chapter 36. And just listen. I mean, if you've got a Bible, that's great. Open to it. But in chapter 36, it's better. It's more advanced advice. Just listen. Uh, bear with me a little and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. 
one who is perfect in knowledge is with you. <laughs> That's pretty boastful, isn't it? You Now you listen to me and I will speak for God because somebody is with you who really knows. It's blatant here. And this is what's really interesting because a lot of the theology that Helu spouses off here is good. It's true. It's right. That's what confuses people that are innocently reading this for devotions because you're reading maybe one chapter. No, you need to read all of Elihu and you need to read it almost out loud to hear the boast, to hear the pride. Elihu goes on and on, always with the sense of condemning Job um, and that the Lord is great. And then he ceases. He ends in chapter 37, the end of it, um, and although a lot of what he says is right, it's ill-conceived and its timing is wrong and the thrust of the message is out of place. Elihu, will you please stop? And that's what we found with some of the other counselors, Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far as well. We come to chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, Finally, finally, after all of this time, finally, God is speaking. And this is what God says to Job. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action. Now, different translations, brace yourself like a man, is the NIV. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you will make known to me. How does God come? To Job, he does not come as a comforter. He does not come to console. He comes much more as the commanding officer who is assigned a responsibility to Job and will hold Job accountable to that responsibility. The problem here has been Job's ignorance, not his unrighteousness. The problem hasn't been his integrity. The problem has been his lack of understanding. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action. Brace yourself like a man. And for the first time, I realized this expression, even though I've gone over it so many times through the years, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Where have you heard that before? Remember the Passover the people were to gird up their loins to be ready to travel. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, no, chapter 1, it says, stay alert, be prepared. And that's the same expression, gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, I find it interesting because this predates the Passover. It predates the Israel experience. Uh, it goes back more to the days of Abraham and the patriarchs. Uh, one almost like a Melchizedek figure arises on the scene in Job. This is really early. It may be our one of the earliest experiences uh, that we have recorded in the Bible. And it has that expression. Gird up the loins of your mind, dress for action. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand who determined its measurements. Surely you know. And have any of you seen the BBC uh, America version of nature 
and Africa and the Cape. It's just it's a series that's showing right now with a uh, very high degree of um, you know it's the latest photographic technology that's being used to look at nature. And this is the first thing that God takes Job through is a nature tour. Where were you? How can you explain the volcanoes and the tornadoes and the and the mountains and the uh, all of that? He just takes him point by point through nature, all to say this. I mean, this is the bottom line through God's response to Job. Job, let God be God. Let God be God. You're not God. Let me be me. And I'm in control. You think it's out of control? It's not. I'm in control. The chaos of Job's life has to be placed in a larger context of God's sovereign, providential care. And maybe the skeptical, cynical, western side of you wants to say, well, that's not a sufficient answer. That sounds weak to me. God coming to Job and saying, let me be me, Job. I'm in charge. That's the answer, though. That's what God says. After all Job has experienced, God says, Job, I really am in control. I am the creator God. And the poetry of chapter 38 and the description, um, well, uh, as you can tell, I'm just sort of going beyond my notes. Uh, it's just easier for me. Um, Verse 18 of chapter 38, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know about this. Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born. That and isn't it interesting that nature keeps uh, underscoring for us that we are small in this vast cosmos? Like the news from NASA this past week that there's seven new planets that have been discovered in a solar system not far from us, 40 light years away. And, uh, uh, you know, you always get this rider on it that maybe there's life on these planets or something. But all it does do it shows us the vastness of nature. And this is where Job, where God begins with Job, how great uh, God's sovereign control of nature is. Some of it's humorous. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly. This is chapter 39, verse 13. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but they are. But are they the pinions and plumage, plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them to be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them. Have any of you spent any time around ostriches? Well, in northern Ghana, they have an ostrich, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, uh, herd. Um, and uh, one of my, uh, Andrew, our middle son, spent three months, and one of his jobs was to take care of the ostriches. They're really difficult creatures. Very stubborn, very mean. And, uh, and that's what this little passage, uh, God speaking to Job about his control of nature, is all about. Uh, he talks about the ostrich, the horse, 
mountain goats, uh, hawks. Um, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Maybe there's something about the timing here. Those who've gone through deep sorrow and suffering are not ready to hear or put that suffering in the larger context of God's grace. Put that suffering in the context of this side of eternity versus the next side of eternity. Put that suffering in the context that God really has sustained you through the suffering. Maybe it's taken 42 chapters to get there. Maybe there's a sense of the timing of what Job has had to wrestle with. And remember, as Job has gone on, he's become more clear and thoughtful about the description of righteousness and justice. Maybe he's ready, finally, to hear this message from God. At least that's a possibility. In chapter 40, God switches to the moral realm and basically presses Job with, well, can you... Can you make justice? Can you handle all that's bad in the world? Can you deal with evil? If you can, you're welcome to it. Go for it. And Job responds in chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. You know, there's a difference between humility and humiliation. I do not believe that God is humiliating Job in this discussion. I think he's humbling him. I don't think he's embarrassing him. I think he's instructing him. And there's a difference. The authority of God is never weakened here. He is the commanding officer, the master that speaks to the servant. And Job is rightly silenced, just like in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John is, is silenced. He's taken down, he's prostrate before the vision of Christ. Uh, just like in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am done, I am a man of unclean lips before the glory of God. There's a sense in which all of us uh, in that moment are, are silenced before the, the power of a holy God. Behold, I am of small account. And yet this dialogue is going on between God and Job. Phenomenal. Yes, Job is speechless. He continues to listen and the Lord challenges Job, again, dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? I'm reading verse 9. Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Go ahead, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who's proud and bring them low. Go ahead, Job. See what you can do. And then it closes off with this, uh, uh, the untamable land creature, Behemoth. 
and with the terrifying sea creature, Leviathan. And you have this, again, poetry of description of the sovereignty of God over both nature and the moral realm. And now we come to chapter 42, which is the conclusion. The epilogue is the epilogue. This is the conclusion. This is the high point. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, for those who are looking for the problem to be in Job, this seems to confirm their expectation. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Finally, he's repenting. I don't agree with that conclusion. I don't agree here that Job is admitting with Elihu and Bildad and Zophar and uh, who did I leave out? Eliphaz. I have been wrong and I'm repenting and I realize that all of this came about because I was wrong. That's not what Job is saying here. Job is saying it's before this greatness and the holiness and the sovereignty of God. He is deeply humbled. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't answer the questions that he's been asking? It's also kind of parallel to the fact that Jesus seldom answered the questions that were posed to him. The questions became a platform from which to Jesus to handle the conversation the way he wanted to. And in a way, God has handled the conversation the way he wanted to. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Is there any other proper place for the most faithful saint to be than in that stage of repentance? Uh, I referred to this couple, um, Catherine and Jay Wolf. Both are Sanford grads. I didn't realize that when I first read about them. Um, but Catherine suffered a um, brainstem hemorrhage that n nearly cost her life. Um, and this is seven months after intensive therapy in the ICU at UCLA um, and extensive uh, surgery to repair and to help uh, maintain her life. And it's the eve before Thanksgiving and family has gathered and she finds herself wondering, and this is how she expresses herself, has God made a mistake? Should I have died? I'm caught between life and death. I can't even walk or eat or play with my child. I've gone from making lasagna in my little kitchen to being fed all my meals through a tube in my stomach. I've gone from going on play dates with girlfriends to attending courses on disability adjustment. 
I used to power walk the hills of Pepperdine. That's where her husband studied law. Now I have two physical therapists and a walker while I agonize to walk one step. I've gone from wearing a cute outfit every day to wearing adult diapers and hospital gowns. I want my old life back. But every day that old life seems further and further away. If I weren't here anymore, things would be better for everyone. Jay could marry a normal, able-bodied woman and James could have a normal mommy. Everyone could stop putting life on hold to help me get well. It isn't working. It isn't ever going to work. Jay and James and our sweet families don't deserve this suffering. I should be in heaven right now. Then at least everyone's pain would eventually come to an end. And then suddenly, before those thoughts, as she explains, were even fully formed in her mind and heart, she felt a deep awakening, a deep awakening of the word of God. And it was as if God himself spoke to her. Catherine, you're not a mistake. I don't make mistakes. I know better than you know. I'm God and you're not. Remember that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in your mother's womb. And that is when the AVM formed in your brain. There is purpose in all of this. Just wait. You'll see. There's no replacing you. Jay could never ever marry a woman as amazing as you. James could never ever have a mommy like you. Think about what this will mean for his life. Mommy's stroke will always be a part of his story. That's a gift to him. It will inform his life. Let him consider it pure joy as he grows. All of this will teach him in ways beyond anything you could say or do. Trust me, I'm working out everything for your good. Don't doubt this truth just because you're in darkness now. What's true in the light is true in the dark. I know you can fight this. This doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. All you have to do is to be still and let me fight for you. I will complete the good work I began when I gave you new life. I will carry it on to completion. Believe that. My nature is to redeem and restore and strengthen. This terrible season will come to an end. You will suffer for a little while and then I will carry you on out of this. You will see my goodness in the land of the living. Lean into this hope. Let it teach you how special you are. Most people will never go through this kind of hell on earth. I have chosen you. Live a life worthy of this special calling you have received. Boy, I really see that as a modern, parallel version of what we have in the book of Job. And the answer that she received from God, very similar to the answer that Job received. I'm in control. You are special. I am speaking to you. I am speaking to you. Um, Did she get one? She still, I mean, she still suffers from um, partial paralysis. Um, but she, you can, you can Google her, and YouTube has her talking through her experience. Uh, which it's really nice to put a, uh, a face and a voice 
to the to the writing um, that's there. The whole thing throughout uh, this uh, drama with Job has been about Job's relationship to God. It's not about answering the question of evil. It isn't a theodicy. It isn't explaining God or justifying God in the midst of evil. What it is is showing how God and Job operate as a team in the midst of a fallen and broken world. Now, what's exciting to me about Job is there's another layer to this story. And that is, I think Job really does prefigure Jesus. And that's why I've called it the gospel according to Job. Because you can parallel Job's righteousness with Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is perfect. As the author of Hebrews says, there is a sinless, perfect sacrifice once and for all that has been delivered for us. But Job is a precursor, an individual who is shaped by the grace of God that uh, makes us think forward to the reality of Jesus and the cross. And then it seems like God's being mean to Job when he raises him up as an example to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And isn't that exactly what he did with his son? Giving his son into the cosmic battle with Satan. Why that had to happen, we don't get behind that. We don't understand that. Except to know that that's how God is working to claim the victory over Satan. I put these, uh, these parallels just so that you can look at them on the back page. If you turn, the, turn it over to the back, they both serve as examples of righteousness. They're both warriors in the cosmic battle. And both Job and Jesus experience resurrection hope. Uh, at one point in this dark dialogue, Job will say, though he slays, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. And later he will affirm, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the end, at, in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job believes in the resurrection life that Christ will bring about. Uh, I got a minute more before we quit, but uh, for the last three years, I've studied the Upper Room Discourse for Lent, uh, John 13 through John 17. And uh, those three themes have been encompassed in my thinking by the God who kneels and washes our feet and the description of that in John, the God who comforts, John 14 through 16, and then Jesus' farewell prayer, his high priestly prayer in John 17, the God who prays. One of the things I was struck with, and I think all three of those get more difficult as you go. It's just an interesting discipleship seminar. Jesus' school of discipleship on the last night before he's betrayed and the day before he's crucified. Uh, it's like this intense seminar with the disciples. But the reason I'm bringing it up here is because that middle, the God who comforts, 
let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That passage and its running commentary. Uh, there is an essential core of what we cling to as the reality for the comfort that God gives to us. And Jesus outlines that in his upper room discourse. And there's, if you can think of it through um, the alliteration here, that may be helpful. Um, the end concern that we have is shalom. Our English word is peace. And that peace is brought about in our lives by really a firm conviction of the parousia. Now, that's the Greek word for Christ coming again. And I would say that our comfort rests on Jesus' comings and goings. On Jesus' comings and goings is the comfort by which we are comforted. Christ is coming again. That is powerful, difficult to believe, radical faith commitment on our part that indeed Jesus is coming again. Lent has no meaning if Jesus is not coming again. The second thing that Jesus brings up is the passion, his life, death, and resurrection, and that he will return to the disciples. So he leads with the parousia, he's coming again. But what substantiates that is the passion, his life, death, and resurrection. The parousia, the passion, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit, which in Greek is the parakalete. Um, and I think we have a sort of a distorted understanding of the parakalete as kind of a comforting comforter, a hallmark hard in person. But it's not that at all. It's more like the best lawyer you've ever had, a real advocate. The Holy Spirit is our attorney. I think that may give it more substance than we have often given to it. And then finally, John 15, abide in me and I'll abide in you. The presence, the presence of God. The comfort with which we are comforted in the light of the experience of, that we've been talking about with Job, this peace, this shalom comes about because of the parousia, the passion, the paraclete, and the abiding presence. And beyond that as a pastor, we'll put that P word in there too, um, beyond that as a pastor, I really don't have the tools to comfort you. I don't have the resources to comfort you. This comfort is a deeply theological reality. If God is not real, well, then I really don't even have an explanation for moral pain in the first place because it should be just counted as fate. It is what happens. It's a question of survival, not salvation. I'm suggesting to you it is a question of salvation and not survival. And the shalom rests on the parousia, the passion, the paraclete, and the presence of God. Oh, we've got so much to think and pray through, don't we? Uh, Lord God, thank you for your goodness to us. And may the God of hope fill us with peace and joy. And as we put our trust in you, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.